title of this thing is Just One. John, the 17th chapter. Just One. The Restoration Movement began in the early uh, 1800s. And part of this movement was one. One. Unity. And how can we be united so that we can fulfill the prayer of Jesus? The church I grew up in in Phoenix, Arizona has had as a uh, stone relief in the cornerstone, and it has a passage of Scripture. May they be one, John 17, 21. The song says, one is the loneliest number. I disagree powerfully. One is a statement and a sign of unity. Just one. Potato chips were sold way back when. You can't eat just one. My father would have friends over, some of his shooting buddies, as he was so involved in trap, shooting trap. And his buddies would come over and dad would offer him a, uh, a bud or a Coors or something. And the friend would say, just one. And about an hour and a half later, there were more than six empties surrounding these guys. Just one, a potato chip, becomes contagious. Just one with an alcoholic becomes many. Just one with the church of Jesus can produce a multitude of followers of Jesus Christ. I studied the Restoration Movement at Emmanuel School of Religion under a guy named Dean E. Walker. His father, W.R. Walker, was contemporary with a guy named P.H. Welshmer. They went to school together. They uh, knew much about this movement and produced great churches and great Christian people. As I sat in this class, I discovered there's a lot I didn't know. This guy was so insightful. He had an absolutely fantastic mind. And so he would draw the students in and he would begin to ask a question, a very simple question, and a standard answer would be given. And then he would hand a shovel to the same student and ask another question. And it's something that the student had never thought of before. And all of a sudden, he's digging for an answer. And after he finishes with the shovel that Dean Walker had given him, he's standing ankle deep in a little trench. And Dean would, Walker would ask another question, producing, okay, I've never thought of that before. And the student starts digging for an answer, and pretty soon he's up to his knees. And after many different questions, all insightful, all filled with an examination of a principle, and now the student is up to his neck and looking to that shovel, and how can I cover myself up and get out of these questions that Dean Walker would ask? So that was the class. We came to the final exam, and we realized we don't have any other grades. 
our soul grade relies and comes from this final exam. What is this man going to ask us? Students came in with three and four of these little blue books that you write your answers in. Everybody's nervous. And Dean Walker walks in and he sits down and he has this wry little smile on his face and he says, gentlemen, for your final exam, I have one question. The air disappears out of the room. My whole grade, my whole semester depends on the answer to one question. He says, this is your question. You find yourself on a deserted, on an island, shipwrecked. You can tell by the smoke that hovers over some of the trees that this island is inhabited. You look next to you and you find a trunk and you open it up and you find a copy of the Bible and a book called Fox's Book of Martyrs. What do you do? No dates, no persons, no principles being asked for. I start writing. And in 12 minutes, I'm done. And I look around. Everybody else is still writing and writing and writing. I look over what I've written and wonder, what am I going to do? I haven't got anything else to say. So I walked up and placed my book on his desk. Went down to the student lounge, began looking through the catalog to find when is this class going to be offered again. <laughs> Two hours later, other students come in and they are exhausted from writing. One of the things that we learned in that class was that unity is the polar star of the Restoration Movement. And Dean Walker wrote this book, Adventuring in Christian Unity. Just one. Just one. And the question he asked on that exam is part of our final exam as well. But what kind of unity is it? He's talking about the unity of a person. The word peace means wholeness in the Hebrew. Not absence of conflict, but wholeness. Are you complete and are you whole in the presence of God as God's spirit dwells within you? Are you whole? And when you are at, have that wholeness within you, you have a unity within yourself, but a unity with God who outlines for us through Jesus Christ what it means to be a person. One Lord, one faith, one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. Unity. Chapter 17 is the prayer of Jesus. He says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them. For they are not of this world any more than I am of this world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect him, them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. 
Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. So the question today is, how do I attain this unity with Jesus Christ? It comes by our faith and our obedience. But within your hand, you have the power to change your own life. Within your hand, you have the power, the ability, and God will present you with the opportunities to unite other people with the Father. That is the basis of the restoration movement. How do we unite people outside of Christ and bring them into Jesus Christ? What am I talking about with related to this hand? When you read Acts, the second chapter, what do you discover? All of a sudden, these disciples, 50 days after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, as Pentecost, all of a sudden, they are in an upper room. Spirit of God descends on them. They step into the community. People are asking, what's going on with you people? Peter stands up and says and begins to tell them about who Jesus is. He gets to his conclusion in verse 36. This Jesus whom you have crucified, he's speaking to Jews who are looking for a Messiah, the son of David, who's going to come and transform the world and get rid of Rome and get rid of the worldly powers. Here is this Messiah, Jesus. And Peter says, this Jesus you've crucified, God made both Lord and Christ the Messiah. And those people believed him. And they ask, what do we do as we've been a part of killing the very Messiah that we were looking for? This is where your hand takes place. Number one, these people heard the gospel. We have to hear it and we have to tell it. And as they heard it, they developed a faith. They believe that Jesus is the Christ and he's the one we need to follow. There's a little word called repentance that then took place. Metamorphosis, I learned in grade school, is the process of transformation with an insect, egg, larva, cocoon, adult. That's metamorphosis, change, form. Repentance is metanoia, which means meta, change, noia, mind. I changed my mind because of my faith and because of what I have heard about Jesus Christ, and I turned my life around to follow Jesus Christ. We need daily repentance, yearly, whatever, as Christian people to continue to reform and reshape our life into the mind of Jesus Christ. And following repentance means admitting, confessing. Who do people say that Jesus is? Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. We confess that faith, and that's part of our salvation. And then we are baptized into Christ. Peter says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sin unto the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
This is the restoration and the movement of restoration that we need to be a part of. This is what the founders of this kind of movement began to push towards. This is our restoration plea, the wholeness of a person to build the wholeness of humanity and to build the wholeness and the strength of the church of Jesus. We are called to unity. And that unity is in our hand as we unify people with God the Father and unify ourselves with each other. So there is the personal unity, but then there is also the corporate unity. And that comes and makes an impact. Many times we think one is a lonely number, but it isn't. Because the Christian walks with Jesus, walks by his spirit. And how can we be alone? We think I'm just one. What difference and impact can I make? Well, Hebrews 11 makes it pretty clear. By faith, Noah. By faith, Abraham. By the faith of one who is willing to maintain that confidence and that walk with God accomplishes great things. You may think, well, I've been a part of the church for 60 years. I don't have any statement or any legacy like these guys in Hebrews 11. You have no idea the impact that God makes through you. You will not see many of the impacts that God has done through you. Why am I here? Phil invited me. But there's a deeper question, an original question, a question of origin. Why am I here? I'm here because of Ted Wilson, First Church of Christ, Phoenix. As I saw the life that that man lived, and I saw the life that my father was living, and I wanted that life. Bob Bradford is why I'm here. Marcel Boulet is why I am here, and why I chose to try to go to school at Pacific Christian for Christian ministry. There's one other person as to why I am here. I'm in a preaching class my first semester at Pacific Christian. I was never good at English and literature and writing and public speaking in high school. And I get to college and I put together an outline of a sermon and I start through that message and I get a paragraph out and I completely go blank. And I don't know what to do. And it tore me apart. And I'm in the chapel at Pacific Christian. And I see the, I can't do it. Folded up my Bible. Walked very quickly. A lot quicker than I can now. 
and I was headed to the push bar and out the door. And John Rao says, stop. And made me turn around, walk back to the pulpit, and said, tell me one thing you wanted to say to us. So I told him. And he said, thank you, and made me sit down. Because he knew, and I knew, once I hit that push bar, I'd no longer be in Phoenix. I'd no longer be in Long Beach. I would be back in Phoenix. Why am I here? One. The other aspect of this is the unity that is corporate. One Lord, one faith, one God and Father, one church. His prayer is in 1720, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who believe in me through their message that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us that the world may believe that you have sent me. This is the restoration of the family of God, bringing it back together as we are united in Christ and then united together. We are called to maintain unity as a congregation as we restore the family of God because we are one Father. We are of one purpose. We are one mind, the Lord's agenda, and that's what restores the church of Jesus. We don't go off on tangents and concern ourselves with how we would like to see something done. But how do we follow Jesus who leads our elders and our pastors? And how do we pull together that as one body of Christ, the fellowship can make an impact on a community that needs Jesus Christ. That is the movement of restoration. The restoration of persons, the restoration of a congregation that can stand together and together bring people in to the presence of Jesus Christ. Maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And that means we as whole individuals gather together, got our flaws, but we're of the mind of Jesus and we allow the Spirit to lead us and to overcome our faults and our difficulties. And so as we work together as a fellowship, Jesus is first and we look to others and they are second in our agenda and last is myself because the church does not exist for me. I exist as a follower of Jesus Christ to make a difference in the world around me and bring people to the foot of the cross, to the presence of Jesus, that they might hear the gospel and they might believe that gospel and follow Peter when he says to repent and confess Jesus is both Lord and Christ and be baptized into him. And so our creed, our purpose, our mission, our vision, our core value is Jesus is Lord. And look at what 
a motley crew he put together in those 12 individuals. He chose 12 very different individuals, culturally, politically, positioned in the community. He picks Levi, a tax man. Can you think of anything more loathsome even today? And in Rome, they got a cut and they were allowed to take even a little more. And they would be seen by the Jews as complicit with the Roman government, the oppressor. And then there's Simon the Zealot. And the Zealots would wander around with these little shivs, if you would, or a hunting knife or a buoy knife or whatever kind of knife sword they had. And if they found a Roman soldier off by himself or a Roman official off by themselves, they would stick it to him. This is the kind of man that Jesus says, come and follow me. And then Peter and all the fishermen, common men. And then he picks Judas, the money guy. And so the question is, how did he pull together these individuals that often would fight one another if they were not under the lordship and mentorship of Jesus. And these people begin to understand that he's the Messiah, the son of David. And many of the Jews thought of a messianic figure, son of of David, who would then come and throw off the oppression of Rome so that they might have the freedom of being Jewish people. So how does the kingdom come? Peter thought he could make sure that the kingdom would come as they came to arrest him and pulled a sword by force. James and John wanted power, sit at the right and the left of Jesus. And I wonder if Judas Iscariot, for only 30 pieces of silver, betrayed Jesus in hopes that he might then call down 10,000 angels and take out Rome and fulfill his role, as he thought it, to be the Messiah. What am I getting at? We don't need power. We don't need to unite as Christian people and as the church and develop a power to make things the way we want them and that fit our moral agenda. We don't need power. We've already got it. Upon this rock I will build my church, Jesus says, and the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. Do you catch that statement? We're not the ones in a fortress trying to protect ourselves. Satan is in a fortress trying to protect himself. And he cannot keep the gates closed to the church of Jesus that is united, the individual who is united with Jesus Christ 
who has the power of the gospel and the power that changes lives and therefore changes a culture and therefore changes a community. What we need is servanthood, servants who stand in the presence of Jesus Christ. Rome was overtaken by the Christian people. Why? Because they were concerned about hurting people and people who hurt themselves through sin. And they transformed their culture, their nation, their country. They overthrew Rome. Why? How? Because of the love of Jesus Christ and the love they had for humanity. That's how we restore the church of Jesus Christ. We need a unity that is also Catholic. No, I'm not talking about the Catholic Church. All that word means is universal. We need the church as a big C, cooperating with one another. <clears throat> one God and one Father. That means that no matter what term we put on ourselves, Roman Catholic, Greek Orthodox, Baptist, Lutheran, Presbyterian, Methodist, we are brothers in Christ. And it's time that the church begins acting like it. And that is the unity, the restoration plea that we call for, unity of congregations no matter what name they put upon themselves. So who's my brother in Jesus? There's a ladder on a second or third story of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. It is the greatest statement of the disunity of the church. How is that a ladder making a statement to the lack of unity? It was placed there in 1728. It's Lebanese cedar wood. It's still apparently sturdy. It stands by a window. It was owned by a mason. Six groups manage that building. Romanian Orthodox, I, I can't even name them. I don't want to name them. But by law, they have to agree, all six, before anything can be done within that building. From 1728 to the present, six groups of Christians cannot agree on when, where, what, who to remove a ladder outside of a church. What's attractive by that, about that? There's nothing attractive about it. And if we're going to stand before the throne of God at the second coming of Jesus, why do we keep waiting for him to come? And why not find a way in which to cooperate and produce unity of the church today? May we be unified so that all people will know Jesus is both, in Christ, is both Lord and Christ. I've seen a book, The Boys in the boat. I don't know much about it, but here's what I learned. Have you ever been to Disneyland and do the canoes around that river? What a disaster. Paddles are clacking and clicking and kids are splashing. Parents and parents are splashing kids and it's chaos, but the boat goes on around. And we can have church that way where there's chaos in the boat, and the paddles are clacked, and people get splashed. 
I did a seminar with a guy in Hawaii suffering for Jesus. And he got us out in an outrigger canoe. And he said, we're going to paddle for several miles. I was younger then. It was a lot uh, easier than killing a pheasant. And uh, so he says, now, you listen to the instructions. And when he says to stroke, you do your best to get that paddle in the water, all eight of you, at the same time. And you pull through, and you get the paddle out at the same time. And as you unify your effort, what's going to happen is you will move faster because if one pedal paddle does not enter and exit at the same time, you hold back the boat. And then he said, if you get, you get this down pat as a team, all eight of you, you will actually lift the boat. Yeah, right. About 15 minutes later, the oar goes in, comes out, and you could feel that outrigger lift. Think what would happen if this church and that church and this congregation and that congregation and what other congregation would get the oars in and out at the same time. And not only do we lift the church, but we lift the opportunities to show what Jesus can do to change our lives. If you drop Calvin's tulip, can you still be a Christian? If you drop your presbytery system, can you still be a Christian? If you drop your whole Greek Orthodox tradition, can you still be a Christian? If you drop the whole structure of the Roman Catholic Church, can those people still be Christian? Yes. One Lord, one faith, one God, and Father of all, who's over all and through all and in all. And that is the beauty of the restoration plea. And so our creed does not come from Nicaea. Our creed does not come from the apostles. Our creed is Jesus is Lord and Christ, and I will hear him I will obey him and be like one of the disciples that he led. And I will be like one of the Christians in that first century. One creed, Jesus Christ. Just one.